Welcome back to Womance's public access read-along of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. I'm Morgan. I read the odd chapters. And I am Isabeau, and I read the even chapters. This week we're reading chapter 14, so you are on my ride. Last week I read chapter 13. We get to know Mr. Rochester a little bit more, but mostly he gets to know Jane a little bit better, looking at some of the really dark fucked up watercolors she did. That's right. There's a lot of drawing room scenes in this book. Anything else pressing that we learned in chapter 13? Oh yeah, we learned that Mr. Rochester has a rather sad and supremely vague backstory (laughs) as to how he came to be the proprietor here at Thornfield. He had a money-hungry older brother and dad, and they conspired to get him in a bad spot to make him independently wealthy, and then his brother died anyways. Isn't that just like mud in your eye? And then for those of you in the know, you all just rolled your eyes and went, independently wealthy. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, right? With that amazing review, chapter 14. For several subsequent days, I saw little of Mr. Rochester. In the mornings, he seemed much engaged with business, and in the afternoon, gentlemen from Millcut or the neighborhood called and sometimes stayed to dine with him. When his sprain was well enough to admit of horse exercise, he rode out a good deal, probably to return these visits, as he generally did not come back till late at night. During this interval, even Adele was seldom sent for to his presence, and all my acquaintance with him was confined to an occasional recontra in the hall, on the stairs, or in the gallery. My book has so much friggin' French in it, and it says rencounter. <laughs> That's so weird. The addition changes between the two of us are, like, boggling to me. This one, like, can't get enough friggin' French. And there's very little French in mine. It's, like, already translated. When he would sometimes pass me haughtily and coldly, just acknowledging my presence by a distant nod or a cool glance, and sometimes bow and smile with a gentlemanly-like affability, his changes of mood did not offend me because I saw that I had nothing to do with their alteration. The ebb and flow depended on causes quite disconnected with me. I think in this opening paragraph, we see that she is in fact seeking him out. She's keeping quite a few tabs on him. He knows where he can be found. (laughs) One day, He had had company to dinner and had sent for my portfolio in order, doubtless, to exhibit its contents. The gentleman went away early to attend a public meeting at Millcote and Mrs. Fairfax informed me, but the night being wet and inclement, Mr. Rochester did not accompany them. Soon after they were gone, he rang the bell. A message came that I and Adele were to go downstairs. I brushed Adele's hair and made her neat, and having ascertained that I was myself in my usual Quaker trim, where there was nothing to retouch, all being too close and plain, braided locks included to admit of disarrangement, we descended. Adele wondering whether the petit coiffeur was at length come, for owing to some mistake, its arrival had heretofore been delayed. She was gratified there it stood, a little carton on the table. When we entered the dining room, she appeared to know it by instinct. My boîte, my boîte, she exclaimed, running towards it. Yes, there's your boîte at last. Take it into a corner, you genuine daughter of Paris, and amuse yourself with disemboweling it, said the deep and rather sarcastic voice of Mr. Rochester, proceeding from the depths of an immense easy chair at the fireside. I'm so worried that when Adele gets older, she's going to be able to remember these things. Yeah, me too. And be like, this is the only one who stepped up to take care of me. And the like, 
resentment he held for me. Like, I wonder if Jane Eyre realizes that she's raising another Jane Eyre and that Rochester is very similar to her aunt. Right? Super damaging. But in, like, through a mirror darkly kind of way. Because Jane didn't get a lot of blots. She didn't. (laughs) And mind, he continued, don't bother me with any details of the anatomical process or any notice of the condition of the entrails. Let your operation be conducted in silence. Tente-toi tranquille, enfant. Comprends-tu? Adele seemed scarcely to need the warning. She had already retired to a sofa with her treasure and was busy untying the cord which secured the lid. Having removed this impediment and lifted certain silvery envelopes of tissue paper, she merely exclaimed, Oh, ciel, qu'est-ce que c'est beau? And then remained absorbed in ecstatic contemplation. Is Miss Eyre there? Now demanded the master, half rising from his seat to look round the door near which I still stood. Ah, well, come forward, be seated here. He drew a chair near his own. Do you think he said all that stuff about the box being disemboweled because he wanted to show Jane that he's into some dark stuff too? You're not the only one who thinks about Satan in the Arctic. Sometimes I, I, I get pretty wild. Yes, exactly. In fact, you're like Arctic Satan was very reminiscent of Frankenstein's first chapters. Like, here I am, let me tell you about human anatomy as pertains to a box. Do you think the book is aware that it's showing that it's demonstrative of the fact that Jane's like already obsessed with him? Like I think about her neat Quaker-like appearance and it reminds me of how whenever you don't have much or you're very self-conscious, you just pull back and pull back and pull back. It's like a way of managing your personal expectations for yourself, right? Instead of trying something really, like a really ambitious hairstyle, just doing a very simple, neat hairstyle. And the fact that she's like aware that he's like returning visits and not coming home until late like how does she know that unless she's like staying up my question is is the book aware of how like obsessed she is i think that's such a good question because this has come up in earlier chapters it's like when do we have jane Eyre and when do we have charlotte bronte yes exactly i don't want to be like too on the nose but i was like do you think she thinks she's doing something like she's like oh like it's just in the book Like, I'm not sure. And I think, like, because you and I can so easily pick up on the fact that, like, Jane is already clearly obsessed. Like, I wonder, because that, like, it has to be intentional. But, like, also, like, I don't know how simpatico, like, Jane and Charlotte are. And they're real blind spots when Charlotte appears on the page. And, like, I don't know. That's always one of the things with unreliable first-person narrators. Like, Jane is mostly reliable most of the time. But, like... Not always. And like, this is a case where like, she's an unreliable narrator. I don't know if that's like intentional on the part of the author or not. Yeah, my inclination is to say no, it's not intentional. And like, I mean, I guess there's a way of dismissing this by being like, well, she needed the exposition in a first person. There are other ways of getting this exposition, though, like a conversation with Mrs. Fairfax. Exactly. They're not hard to problem solve around. Just to like fully show my hand. I think it's evocative of a certain energy that Charlotte had in her life, which I relate to. Like I get totally energized and just pursuant of something. And I don't realize how like over the top it is or that it's weird or that it indicates anything other than you know, oh, these are the facts. And it's like, well, how do you have that information, you fucking psycho? I think she was just like, I don't know. Sometimes girls just know what boys do. Whatever. That's a good point. You know, I don't think Charlotte was asking herself why Jane had this information. I don't get that sense. Yeah. But you would have to stay awake waiting for something to happen in order to... It's a small house. There aren't that many inmates. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, welcome to our wild speculations about Charlotte Bronte's personality corner. Know that someone had arrived home late. Like, it's a big-ass house. Like, his quarters are probably far from hers. Whatever. Oh, well. 
Come forward, be seated here. He drew a chair near his own. I'm not fond of the prattle of children, he continued. For old bachelor as I am, I have no pleasant associations connected with their lisp. It'd be intolerable to me to pass a whole evening tete-a-tete with a brat. Don't draw that chair further off, Miss Ayer. Sit down exactly where I placed it, if you please, that is. Confound these civilities, I continually forget them. Nor do I particularly affect simple-minded old ladies, by the by, I must have in mind. It won't do to neglect her, she is a Fairfax, or wed to one, and blood is said to be thicker than water. I don't love that he's mean to Miss Fairfax. I think, like, his relationship to Miss Fairfax can perhaps tell us a lot about his relationship to Thornfield. He's so mean, but there's something, and I don't know if it's just in the way that I'm, like, listening to you read it, and that kind of, like, hurried insistence, but I don't know if he's trying to make Jane feel special because she has his interest, and then at the same time trying to, like, manage that, right? Like, blunt it a little by being like, but also, like, old people and kids suck, right? Like, you agree. And then also being, like, doing that thing where it's like, oh, we both dislike this thing, so now we have something in common. I think it's that, that he assumes that they're in this intimacy together. Yeah, she's the governess. She's not the help, and she is not a child, even though she looks like one, and he likes that. (laughs) For someone who doesn't like children. Yeah, exactly. He likes them small and malnourished. Alive yet womanly. I think live yet womanly. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's a reference to, I can't remember, the episode title is live yet womanly. It's a reference to someone being very thin, but also having gigantic bazungas. But I think live yet womanly really applies to Jane because like her soul is womanly and her exterior is just life. <laughs> yeah, the fact that he sees her as superior to Miss Fairfax already and is entreating her into this like unkind confidence. He rang and dispatched an invitation to Mrs. Fairfax, who soon arrived, knitting basket in hand. Good evening, madam. I sent to you for a charitable purpose. I have forbidden Adele to talk to me about her presence, and she is bursting with repletion. Have the goodness to serve her as a dietress and interlocutrice. Interlocutrice? It's interlocutor, but interlocutrice. Yes. Auditress. Why is it trees and tress? I don't know. English is weird. Hopefully, if you learn this language as a second language, these two words don't come up very often. I should have hoped not. Be one of the most benevolent acts you ever performed. Adele indeed no sooner saw Mrs. Fairfax than she summoned her to the sofa and there quickly filled her lap with the porcelain and the ivory, the waxen contents of her boite, pouring out, meantime, explanations and raptures in such broken English as she was mistress of. And like, that's mean to both of them because like, Adele wants to share, but she has broken English and Mrs. Fairfax doesn't speak any French. It's kind of like embarrassing to them both. Not being able to speak French is such a reminder to Mrs. Fairfax of her social status and not being able to speak English is just like probably Adele's like personal daily torment. Yeah, not being understood. Now I have performed the part of a good host, pursued Mr. Rochester. Put my guests into the way of amusing each other. I ought to be at liberty to attend to my own pleasure. Miss Eyre, draw your chair still a little further forward. You are too far back. I cannot see you without disturbing my position in this comfortable chair, which I have no mind to do. Well, then don't look at me. I did as I was bid, though I would much rather have remained somewhat in the shade. But Mr. Rochester had such a direct way of giving orders, it seemed a matter of course to obey him promptly. We were, as I have said, in the dining room. The luster, which had been lit for dinner, filled the room with a festal breadth of light. 
and the large fire was all red and clear. The purple curtains hung rich and ample before the lofty window and loftier arch. Everything was still save the subdued chat of Adele. She dared not speak loud, and filling up each pause, the beating of winter rain against the panes. Mr. Rochester, as he sat in his damask-covered chair, looked different to what I had seen him look before. Not quite so stern, much less gloomy. There was a smile on his lips, and his eyes sparkled. Whether with wine or not, I am not sure, but I think it very probable. He was, in short, in his after-dinner mood. More expanded and genial, and also more self-indulgent than the frigid and rigid temper of the morning. Still, he looked preciously grim, cushioning his massive head against the swelling of the chair, and receding the light of the fire on his granite-hewn features and in his great dark eyes, for he had great dark eyes, and very fine eyes too, not without a certain change in their depth sometimes, which, if was not softness, reminded you, at least, of that feeling. He had been looking two minutes at the fire, and I had been looking the same length at him, when, turning suddenly, he caught my gaze fastened on his physiognomy. Loves that word. It means his um, face because she used it in contrast to his body in the last chapter. His head. What's that called whenever they start measuring heads and saying that? Oh, yeah. It's that. Yeah. You examine me, Miss Eyre, said he. Do you think me handsome? I should, if I had deliberated, have replied to this question by something conventionally vague and polite, but the answer somehow slipped from my tongue before I was aware. No, sir. Ah, by my word, there is something singular about you, said he. You have the air of a little nanette, quaint, quiet, grave, and simple as you sit with your hands before you, and your eyes generally bent on the carpet, except by the by when you are directed piercingly to my face as just now, for instance. And when one asks you a question or makes a remark to which you are obliged to reply, you wrap out a round rejoinder, which, if not blunt, is at least brusque. What do you mean by it? Sir, I was too plain. I beg your pardon. I ought to have replied that it was not easy to give an impromptu answer to a question about appearances, that tastes differ, that beauty is of little consequence, or something of that sort. You ought to have replied no such thing. Beauty of little consequence indeed. And so, under pretense of softening the previous outrage of stroking and soothing me into placidity, you stick a sly penknife under my ear. Go on, what fault do you find with me, pray? I suppose I have all my limbs and all my features like any other man. That sucks. This is so true, though. Like, men, like, are considered handsome for, like... Having a body. Yeah, like, being a man. Yeah, the standards of beauty for women are much more complex. Hey, hot take. I also love, like, how up in arms he is about it. Like, you asked an impertinent question, Mr. Rochester. This is what you get. Mr. Rochester, allow me to disown my first answer. I intended no pointed repartee. It was only a blunder. Just so, I think so, and you shall be answerable for it. Criticize me. Does my forehead not please you? He lifted up the sable waves of hair which lay horizontally over his brow and showed a solid enough mass of intellectual organs, but an abrupt deficiency where the suave sign of benevolence should have risen. Now, ma'am, am I a fool? Oh, come on, Jane. This also reminds me of like every book in the Ice Wine series that we read whenever they described him as looking devilish, right? There's no benevolence. Mm-hmm. I just like also his intellectual organs. It feels so Melville. But it's very physiognomy, right? Yeah, exactly. You got a big forehead, you got a big brain. Yeah, leader of race. Now, ma'am, am I a fool? Far from it, sir. You should perhaps think me rude if I inquired in return whether you are a philanthropist. 
there again, another stick of the penknife when she pretended to pat my head. And that is because I said I did not like the society of children and old women, low be it spoken. No, young lady, I am not a general philanthropist, but I bear a conscience. And he pointed to the prominences, which are said to indicate that faculty, and which fortunately for him were sufficiently conspicuous, giving indeed a marked breadth of the upper part of the head. I don't love that they are both so conversant in this. Yeah, yeah. But it also kind of reminds me of talking about astrology. Yeah, except this was a science used to like harm people. And I think CoStar just drags people for fun. Yeah, and that's just like one way you can use astrology. Whereas I think like physiognomy really had like a inevitable point B and was also just wrong. Literally. Whereas the stars, the cosmos are correct. Eternal. Eternal and correct. Indeed, a marked breath to the upper part of his head. And besides, I once had a kind of rude tenderness of heart. When I was as old as you, I was a feeling fellow enough, partial to the unfledged, unfostered, and unlucky. But fortune has knocked me about since. She has even kneaded me with her knuckles, and now I flatter myself I am hard and tough as an Indian rubber ball. Previous, though, through a chink or two still, and with one sentient point in the middle of the lump. Yes, does that leave hope for me? Hope of what, sir? Of my final retransformation from Indian rubber ball back to flesh. Decidedly, he has had too much wine, I thought. I did not know what answer to make to his queer question. How could I tell whether he was capable of being retransformed? You look very much puzzled, Miss Eyre. I just thought of our conversation in Aha Shake Heartbreak of really, really early crusader romantic poetry. And they're having this conversation about eugenics. And he's basically asking if a leopard can retransform its spots, right? If he can return, which is also a central question in those crusader romantic poems. Like, can you change yourself in order to be loved and that's like a real necessitation of the text that they have to change who they are fundamentally by becoming christian yeah that it is a central and driving question about like redemption right it's like retransformation is the word here but what the underlying thing is can i be redeemed but i think maybe we could even parse that out more like the value statement is certainly present in all romance right whenever the hero or heroine makes a deep personal change right it's always for the better but i think we can think of it like more usefully just as change period and that way we can interrogate whether or not people are actually making good worthwhile changes to who they are in order to be in love and should anyone be called upon to do that you know just to ask like a question bigger than this book and bigger than this show like is asking someone to change ever really about love or is it just about you and making your life easier and doesn't that kind of rupture the idea of love I think that's exactly right. And the way that you phrased it just a second ago, where it's like to change in order to be in love. And I think it's to change in order to be in love and be loved. And like, that's like the fulcrum where it's like, there's a two part to this equation. It's like you change in order to be a better lover in all of the senses, but you are also asking for a change so that you are more worthy of love. And like, there's this move here about changing self in order to be a more loving creature, but also to be a more lovable creature. That's a huge toughie. 
don't think you should change. I mean, I think he's made some bad decisions. I also think it's interesting that he sees this as a comeback rather than like this re-transformation. Like the first transformation was into the hard rubber ball that has no love in it and is unlovable. And then the re-transformation would be back into flesh, something that is worthy of love and can love. Decidedly, he has had too much wine, I thought. But I did not know what answer to make to his queer question. How could I tell whether he was capable of being retransformed? You look very much puzzled, Miss Air. And though you are not pretty any more than I am handsome, yet a puzzled air becomes you. Besides, it is convenient, for it keeps those searching eyes of yours away from my physiognomy. Stop saying it! <laughs> and busies them with the worsted flowers of the rug. So puzzle on. Young lady, I am disposed to be gregarious and communicative tonight. With this announcement, he rose from his chair and stood, leaning his arm on the marble mantelpiece. In that attitude, his shape was seen plainly as well as his face, his usual breadth of chest disproportionate almost to his length of limb. I'm sure most people would have thought him an ugly man, yet there was so much unconscious pride in his port, so much ease in his demeanor, such a look of complete indifference to his own external appearance, so haughty a reliance on the power of other qualities, intrinsic or advantageous, to atone for the lack of mere personal attractiveness, that in looking at him one inevitably shared the indifference and even in a blind, imperfect sense put faith in the confidence. I am disposed to be gregarious and communicative tonight, he repeated, and that is why I sent for you. The fire and the chandelier were not sufficient company for me, nor would Pilot have been, for none of these can talk. Adele is a degree better, but still far below the mark, Mrs. Fairfax, ditto. You, I am persuaded, can suit me, if you will. You puzzled me the first evening I invited you down here. I've almost forgotten you since. Other ideas have driven yours from my head, but tonight I am resolved to be at ease, to dismiss what importunes and recall what pleases it would please me now to draw you out to learn more of you therefore speak instead of speaking i smiled and not a very complacent or submissive smile either speak he urged what about sir whatever you like i leave both the choice of subject and the manner of treating it entirely to yourself accordingly i sat and said nothing if he expects me to talk for the mere sake of talking and showing off, he will find he has addressed himself to the wrong person, I thought. You are dumb, Miss Eyre. I was dumb still. He bent his head a little towards me and with a single hasty glance seemed to dive into my eyes. Stubborn and annoyed. Ah, it is consistent. I put my request in an absurd, almost insolent form. Miss Eyre, I beg your pardon. The fact is, once for all. I don't wish to treat you like an inferior. That is, correcting himself. I claim only such superiority as must result from 20 years difference in age and a century's advance in experience. This is legitimate attitudin, as Adele would say. And it is by virtue of this superiority and this alone that I desire you to have the goodness to talk to me a little now and divert my thoughts, which are galled with dwelling on one point, cankering as a rusty nail. It deigned an explanation, almost an apology. I did not feel sensible to his condescension and would not seem so i'm willing to amuse you if i can sir quite willing but i cannot introduce a topic because how do i know what will interest you ask me questions and i will do my best to answer then in the first place do you agree with me that i have a right to be a little masterful abrupt perhaps exacting sometimes on the grounds i stated namely that i am old enough to be your father and that i have battled through a varied experience with many men of many nations and roamed over half the globe while you have lived quietly with one set of people in one house do as you please sir 
That is no answer, or rather it is very irritating, because a very evasive one. Reply clearly. I don't think so, sir. You have a right to command me, merely because you are older than I, or because you have seen more of the world than I have. Your claim to superiority depends on the use you have made of your time and experience. Humph. Probably spoken. But I won't allow that, seeing that it would never suit my case, as I have made an indifferent, not to say a bad use of both advantages, leaving superiority out of the question, then you must still agree to receive my orders now and then, without being piqued or hurt by the tone of the command. Will you? I smiled. I thought to myself, Mr. Rochester is peculiar. He seems to forget that he pays me 30 pounds per annum for receiving his orders. Anum. <laughs> <laughs> but also, yes. Oh my God. Bosses think they are funny and think they are clever and get to think all sorts of things about themselves because we are all paid to just get through it with them and not get fired. Sometimes bosses actually are those things. It's a real Michael Scott situation. It's a real Michael Scott situation. And it's like, oh, so you're in a gregarious, like, after dinner drunken mood? Like, why am I? I, like, haven't had the leisure that you've enjoyed over the past, whatever. I've just been taking care of your, like, ward. But I think Jane Eyre is taking a little bit of pleasure in the fact that he forgot. (laughs) She is. That he sees her as someone who must agree to be his friend. Smiles very well, said he, catching instantly the passing expression, but speak to. I was thinking, sir, that very few masters would trouble themselves to inquire whether or not their paid subordinates were piqued and hurt by their orders. Paid subordinates. What? (laughs) You were my paid subordinate, are you? Oh yes, I had forgotten the salary. Well then, on that mercenary ground, will you agree to let me hector a little? No, sir, not on that ground, but on the ground that you did forget it and that you care whether or not a dependent is comfortable in in his dependency. I agree heartily. And will you consent to dispense with a great many conventional forms and phrases without thinking that the omission arises from insolence? I'm sure, sir, I should never mistake informality. For insolence. One I rather like, and the other nothing freeborn would submit to, even for a salary. Humbug! Most things freeborn will submit to anything for a salary. Therefore, keep to yourself and don't venture on generalities of which you are intensely ignorant. However, I mentally shake hands with you for your answer, despite its inaccuracy, and as much for the manner in which it was said. As for substance of the speech, the manner was frank and sincere. One does not often see such a manner. No, on the contrary. Affection or coldness or stupid, coarse-minded misapprehension of one's meaning or the usual rewards of candor. Not three in three thousand raw school governesses would have answered me as you have just done. But I don't mean to flatter you. If you are cast in a different mold to the majority, it is no merit of yours. Nature did it. And then, after all, I go too fast if my conclusions. For what I yet know, you may be no better than the rest. You may have intolerable defects to counterbalance your few good points. And so may you, I thought. My eye met his. As the idea crossed my mind, he seemed to read the glance, answering as if its import had been spoken, as well as imagined. Yes, yes, you are right, Ski. I have plenty of faults of my own. I know it. I don't wish to palliate on them, I assure you. God wot, I need not be too severe about others. I have a past existence, a series of deeds, a 
color of life to contemplate within my own breast, which might well calm my sneers and censures from my neighbors to myself. I started, or rather for like other defaulters, I like to lay half the blame on ill fortune and adverse circumstances, was thrust onto the wrong tack at the age of one and 20 and have never recovered the right course since. And I might have been very different. It might have been as good as you, wiser, almost as stainless. I envy you your peace of mind, your clean conscience, your unpolluted memory. Little girl, a memory without blot or contamination must be an exquisite treasure, an inexhaustible source of pure refreshment, is it not? How was your memory when you were 18, sir? All right then, limpid, salubrious. No gush of bilge water had turned it to fetid puddle. I was your equal at 18. Quite your equal. Nature meant me to be, on the whole, a good man, Miss Eyre. One of the better end, and you see I am not so. Say you don't see it. At least I flatter myself I read as much in your eye. Beware, by the by, what you express in that organ. I am quick at interpreting its language. Then take my word for it, I am not a villain. You are not to suppose that, not to attribute to me any such bad imminence. But owing, I verily believe, rather to circumstances than to my natural bent, I am a trite, commonplace sinner, hackneyed in all the poor, petty dissipations with which the rich and worthless try to put on life. Do you wonder that I avow this to you? Know that in the course of your future life, you will often find yourself elected the involuntary confidant of your acquaintances' secrets. People will instinctively find out, as I have done, that it is not your forte to talk of yourself, but to listen while others talk of themselves. They will feel, too, that you listen with no malevolent scorn of their indiscretions, but with a kind, innate sympathy, not the less comforting and encouraging because it is very unobtrusive in its manifestations. Bad Eminence is a reference to Paradise Lost, so I think he's sharing that he over-identifies with one of her paintings. Nice. How do you know? How can you guess all this, sir? I know it well. Therefore, I proceed almost as freely as if I were writing my thoughts in a diary. You would say I should have been superior to circumstances. So should I. So should I. But you see, I was not. When fate wronged me, I had not the wisdom to remain cool. I turned desperate, then degenerated. Now, when any vicious simpleton excites my disgust by his paltry ribaldry, I cannot flatter myself that I am better than he. I am forced to confess that he and I are on a level. I wish I had stood firm. God knows I do. Dread remorse when you are tempted to err, Miss Eyre. Remorse is the poison of life. Repentance is said to be its cure, sir. It is not its cure. Reformation may be its cure, and I could reform. I have strength yet for that, if, but where is the use of thinking of it? Hampered, burdened, cursed as I am. Besides, since happiness is irrevocably denied me, I have a right to get pleasure out of life, and I will get it, cost what it may. Then you will degenerate still more, sir. Possibly. Yet why should I, if I can get sweet, fresh pleasure? And I may get it as sweet and fresh as the wild honey the bee gathers on the moor. It will sting. It will taste bitter, sir. How do you know? You never tried it. How very serious, how very solemn you look, and you are as ignorant of the matter as this cameo head taking one from the mantelpiece. You have no right to preach to me, you neophyte, that have not passed the porch of life and are absolutely unacquainted with its mysteries. I only remind you of your own words, sir. You said error brought remorse, and you pronounce remorse the poison of existence. And who talks of error now? I scarcely think the notion that flitted across my brain was an error. I believe it was an inspiration rather than a temptation. It was very genial, very soothing. I know that. Here it comes again. It is no devil, I assure you, or if it be, it has put on the robes of an angel of light. I think I must admit so fair a guest when it asks entrance to my heart. 
distrust it, sir. It is not a true angel. What's more, how do you know? By what instinct do you pretend to distinguish between a fallen seraph of the abyss and a messenger from the eternal throne, between guide and seducer? Uh, I am in love with that question. I judge by your countenance, sir, which was troubled when you said the suggestion had re returned upon you. I feel sure it will work you more misery if you listen to it. Not at all. It bears the most gracious message in the world. For the rest, you are not my conscience keeper, so don't make yourself uneasy. Here, come in, Bonnie Wanderer. He said this as if he spoke to a vision. You list to my eye, but his own, then folding his arms which had half extended on his chest, he seemed to enclose in their embrace an invisible being. Now, he continued, again addressing me, I have received the pilgrim. The disguised deity, as I verily believe. Already it has done me good. My heart was a sort of charnel. It will now be a shrine. To speak true, sir, I don't understand you at all. I cannot keep up the conversation because it has got out of my depth. Only one thing I know. You said you were not as good as you should like to be, and that you regretted your own imperfection. One thing I can comprehend. You intimated that to have a sullied memory was a perpetual bane. It seems to me that if you tried hard, you would, in time, find it possible to become what you yourself would approve, and that if from this day you begin with resolution to correct your thoughts and actions, you would, in a few years, have laid up a new and stainless store of recollections to which you might revert with pleasure. Justly thought, rightly said, Miss Eyre, and at this moment, I am paving hell with energy. Sir, I'm laying down good intentions, which I believe durable as flint. Certainly my associates and pursuits shall be other than they have been. And better? And better. So much better as pure ore is than foul dross. You seem to doubt me. I don't doubt myself. I know what my aim is, what my motives are. And at this moment, I pass a law unalterable as that of the Medes and Persians, that both are right. Medes and Persians. This is why I don't like end notes. I'm paving hell. The proverbial saying the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Medicine Persians. See Esther chapter 1 verse 19. Let it be written among the laws, the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no before King Ashurus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. The illusion is very telling since it concerns Vashti's refusal to play the obedient wife and King Ashurus's determination to take a new queen. Okay. They cannot be, sir, if they require a new statute to legalize them. They are, Miss Eyre, though they absolutely require a new statute. Unheard of combinations of circumstances demand unheard of rules. He's talking about bigamy. Yeah, he is. Cutting edge dude. <laughs> that sounds a dangerous maxim, sir, because one can see at once that it is liable to abuse. See Joseph Smith. <laughs> Sententious sage, so it is, but I swear by my household gods not to abuse it. You are human, infallible. I am, so are you. What then? The human, infallible, should not aggregate a power with which the divine and perfect alone can be safely entrusted. What power? That of saying of any strange and sanctioned line of action. Let it be right. Let it be right. The very words you have pronounced them. May it be right, then, I said as I rose, deeming it useless to continue a discourse which was all darkness to me, and besides sensible that the character of my interlocutor was beyond my penetration, at least beyond its present reach, and feeling the uncertainty, the vague sense of insecurity, which accompanies a conviction of ignorance. Where are you going? To put Adele to bed. It is past her bedtime. You're afraid of me, because I talk like a sphinx. Your language is enigmatical, sir, but... Is it? <laughs> I mean, that was a pretty stark allusion to bigamy. I mean, I... I... <laughs> okay. 
Your language is enigmatical, sir. But though I am bewildered, I am certainly not afraid. You are afraid. Your self-love dreads a blunder. In that sense, I do feel apprehensive. I have no wish to talk nonsense. If you did, it would be in such a grave, quiet manner. I should mistake it for sense. Do you never laugh, Miss Eyre? Don't trouble yourself to answer. I see you laugh rarely. But you can laugh very merrily. Believe me, you're not naturally austere any more than I am naturally vicious. The low wood constraint still clings to you, somewhat controlling your features, muffling your voice, and restricting your limbs, and you fear in the presence of a man and a brother or father or master or what you will, to smile too gaily, speak too freely, or move too quickly. But in time, I think you will learn to be natural with me, as I find it impossible to be unconventional with you. I think you will learn to be natural with me as I find it impossible to be conventional with you. And then your looks and movements will have more vivacity and variety than they dare offer now. I see at intervals the glance of a curious sort of bird through the close-set bars of a cage. A vivid, restless, resolute captive is there. Were it but free, it would soar cloud high. You are still bent on going? It has struck nine, sir. Never mind, wait a minute, Adele's not yet ready to go to bed yet. My position, Miss Eyre, with my back to the fire and my face to the room favors observation. While talking to you, I have also occasionally watched Adele. I have my own reasons for thinking her a curious study, reasons that I may, nay, that I shall impart to you someday. I think she might be my kid, trying to determine <laughs> whether or not she's mine or somebody else's. Here I am, sphinx-like, probably totally opaque to you, trying to stare at the shape of her head. <laughs> She's a dummy. She's no smart. Her forehead's not like mine. So that's a mark against her and our genealogy. She pulled out of her box about 10 minutes ago a little pink silk frock. Rapture lit her face as she unfolded it. Coquetry runs in her blood, blends with her brains, and seasons the marrow of her bones. Il faut que je le sie, cried she. Et l'instant même. She rushed out of the room. She is now with Sophie undergoing a robing process. In a few minutes, she will re-enter, and I know what I shall see. A miniature Celine Varence, as she used to appear on the boards at the rising of blank. But never mind that. However, my tenderest feelings are about to receive a shock, such as my pre-sentiment. Stay now to see whether it will be realized. Ere long, Adele's little foot was heard tripping across the hall. She entered, transformed as her guardian had predicted, a dress of rose-colored satin, very short and as full in the skirt as it could be gathered, replaced the brown frock she had previously worn. A wreath of rosebud circled her forehead. Her feet were dressed in silk stockings and small white satin sandals. Esque ma robe bien? cried she, bounding forwards. Et ma soulier, et ma bas, tenez, je crois que je vais danser. And spreading out her dress, she chasséed across the room, till having reached Mr. Rochester, she wheeled lightly round before him on tiptoe, then dropped on one knee at his feet, exclaiming, Monsieur, je vous remercie, mi foi de votre bonté. Then rising, she added, C'est comme cela que maman faisait, n'est-ce pas, monsieur? Precisely, was the answer, and comme cela, she charmed my English gold out of my British breeches pocket. Been green too, Miss Eyre. Ah, grass green. Not a more vernal tint freshens you now that once freshened me. My spring is gone, however, but it has left me that French florette on my hands, which in some moods I would fain be rid of. 
Not valuing now the root whence it sprang, having found that it was the sort which nothing but gold dust could manure. I have but half a liking to the blossom, especially when it looks so artificial as just now. I keep it and rear it, rather than the Roman Catholic principle of expiating numerous sins, great or small, by one good work. I'll explain all this one day. Good night. need to explain seriously calling Adele an it this chapter I wrote so many notes as I was listening to you talk he is so descriptive of everything that we're gonna find out later which is probably why we're like uh duh but I think there's like quite a bit here that should have been obvious to Jane and, and maybe was obvious to contemporaneous readers one thing that I was thinking of though whenever he was talking about what happened to him when he was 21 Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these allusions to Milton, and we talked once about how Paradise Last is basically Bible fan fiction, and I was thinking about how wide Saragossa Sea is to Jane Eyre, what Milton is to the Bible, and it's hard to not think about that text and how it describes what happened when he was 21 compared to how he's describing it here, because of course that book pulls so much from this text, and so it's very easy to see the parallelism in how he's describing his experiences to Jane and, and how it was actually depicted in that text. But he he is he's so upfront about wanting Jane and loving Jane and this idea of him being cold he's not cold at all she's just very so at first I was like oh she's not very bright like whoosh then I thought about you know oftentimes women think that we are engaged in some kind of egalitarian friendship forming equal footing conversation with men when in actuality they're just kind of calculating not even like whether or not they're sexually interested in us so much as like how our sexual interest in them is capital right and an exertion of power and, and I was thinking about that there I remember this essay in Jezebel forever ago when 30 Rock was on the air and a woman wrote about making the miscalculation thinking that she could have a Jack Donaghy and discovering that she was not invited to her boss's summer home for a party <laughs> and what that experience was like yeah, I'm both surprised by his, like, sentimental candor about, like, the way that he describes himself as, like, a degenerate and, like, how all of that is both painful to him, but, like, he deserves fresh pleasure. Like, when he said that, I was like, fuck, Jane, he's talking about you and, like, your body. Like, how are you missing this? Or her soul, you know? Yeah, because it's her being, right? It's not just, like, carnality here. It's, like, the thing that she is he, like, wants to cover himself in. Which is, like, so classic older guy. Totally. Younger girl thinking. That's what they all want to do. Yeah. It's like you'll make me better or younger or more desirable, but also like fresh again. Yeah. He's 20 years older than her, literally says I could be your father, and is also still talking about like the fresh pleasures. This chapter is bonkers in so many ways because like Rochester is being like very plain. Yeah. And it's bonkers. Like I forgot how early this chapter came where he's like drunken by the fire and like saying mean things. And he's like, don't think me a villain. Like I've done bad things but I was meant to be a good man. Boy, what a confession that is. 
One thing in this reading that I noticed that I have never noticed before is that he kind of reveals that he had a pre-Jane and Adele's mother and that he truly loved her and thought that she would be his fresher than springtimeness and is disappointed in Adele being like a pale reflection of her mother. And it's kind of like, well, were you expecting to like raise yourself another one? Like, what was the vision there? Or have you just, and now you've matured and realized how disinteresting a lover like Adele's mother is whenever you're an older person. Like, it's a real romantic story. My spring is gone, but it has left me that French flowerette on my hands, which in some moods I would faith be rid of, not valuing now the root whence it sprung, having found that it was of the sort which nothing but gold dust can manure. I have but half liking to the blossom, especially when it looks so artificial as just now. Right. This idea of artifice and that like he fell out of love with Juliet Varnes. But did he? Because like it also seems like he's maybe just revering Jane because she's in opposition Mm -hmm. to Adele's mother. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think he is grasping. It's clear that he wants to be retransformed or redeemed and he's grasping. And I think it's right to say that like Jane's opposition to his former lover and mother of his child is like, well, this one didn't work. Let's try the opposite, you know? And it's starting to kind of lay this groundwork that I don't think is necessarily intentioned by the text, but that this isn't really a book about him being in love with Jane. It's a book about Jane being in love with him Mm -hmm. because he's really just self-serving even in this relationship. And he was very self-serving in the first relationship. You know, he's always trying to rewrite that first marriage. Yes. That current marriage. And that's interesting to think about also in terms of wide Sarah goes to see, which I think actually pulls a lot. I think that text, which we're not technically talking about, but I think it's important to note that text really pulls out the idea of him feeling like a degenerate after that marriage and what it is about that early love that made him feel like a degenerate. And I think the idea that like you wouldn't degenerate yourself for someone you didn't feel passionately about. Mm -hmm. But it's like the wrong kind of passion. Right. It's the wrong kind of passion. I also wanted to ask you, you said you love this question. Once more, how do you know? By what instinct do you pretend to distinguish between a fallen seraph of the abyss and a messenger from the eternal throne, between a guide and a seducer? I love that question. Why? I love it because you don't know. And like, there isn't a way to know. I like, I literally just rewatched Good Omens this week. And I think like that question keeps coming up, like what makes a demon, what makes someone fallen and like what makes an angel. And I've been thinking a lot recently about like rigidity and what like moral relativism can really like, you know, give us or whatever. So like, I like thinking about angels who do bad things because they're shitty, like because their morality is so rigid that they are like actually do bad things. And I like thinking about demons who tempt into other kinds of acts. I just like the question, like, how can you know, right? Like, how can the thing that's inside of you saying like, do this, do this, like, how can you know its origin? It's like, you can't because it comes from inside of you. Like, it is you. I like the formation of the idea of guide versus seducer, because I feel like both of those are like pulling along a journey, right? Like directing rather than acting and like guide seems so neutral compared to seducer. Yeah, but like maybe isn't. I think he is still thinking in dichotomies 
because he pairs guide with seducer and seducer is such an obviously moralized word and being like well i can't tell if it's good or bad i don't think alleviates the fact that it is good or bad he just can't tell i don't think he's speaking to any kind of moral ambiguity just his own lack of confidence and discerning which is which I think he knows which is which. We're watching a rationalization in real time in front of Jane. Like when he says that you're basically like my diary right now. Like that's what that question bespeaks for me. Where it's like he knows what's right and wrong. He's just putting it in these terms. Because like he doesn't want to think of himself as a villain. He doesn't want to think of himself as a degenerate. So all of this is in service to like I'm not a bad guy. I do bad things. Right. The way you described it before, I kind of understood your interest in the question as like, you know, good things can be bad and bad things can be good. But I think the way he's forming it is, I think he's using that to justify a bad thing, which I think is often how it's used. I don't think it's actually that. I think this kind of plasticity to ethics and understanding like cultural relativism or whatever doesn't exist in the way he wants it to. It doesn't. And I didn't mean to say that like Rochester was thinking those things. I was thinking those things. Like I love the way the question is phrased purely for myself. Like I'm enjoying it as an audience member. I like what the question is prompting me to think about. Not that Rochester isn't using it exactly as you said. He's using it as a justification and a rationalization to continue bad behavior that he knows is bad. Uh, And excusing himself along the way. Exactly. All right. uh, Any other thoughts about this chapter? So fleshy. Yeah, just another drawing room discussion. (laughs) All right. uh, Next week, we'll be reading chapter 15. 15. Can't wait to see what happens. With that, loosen your Janes. Whenever your heirs. Mwah. Mwah.